Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 26 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, History of the Birth and Childhood of Jesus. Chapter 3, Announcement of the Conception of Jesus, Its Supernatural Character, Visit of Mary to Elizabeth. Section 26 jesus begotten of the holy ghost criticism of the orthodox opinion the statement of matthew and of luke concerning the mode of jesus's conception has in every age received the following interpretation by the church that jesus was conceived in mary not by a human father but by the holy ghost and truly the gospel expressions seem at first sight to justify this interpretation, since the words prin hi sun elthine autus, from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and epi andra uganusco, from Luke chapter 1, verse 34, preclude the participation of Joseph or any other man in the conception of the child in question. Nevertheless, the terms pneuma agion and dunamis hupisistone do not represent the Holy Ghost in the sense of the Church, as the third person in the Godhead, but rather the Spiritus Dei, as used in the Old Testament, God in his agency upon the world, and especially upon man. In short, the words, En gastri ecusa ec pneumatos agiu, in Matthew, and pneuma agion epel ihusetai epi se etc., in Luke, express with sufficient clearness that the absence of human agency was supplied, not physically after the manner of heathen representations, but by the divine creative energy. Though this seems to be the representation intended by the evangelists in the passages referred to concerning the origin of the life of Jesus, still it cannot be completed without considerable difficulties we may separate what we may term the physico-theological from the historical-exegetical difficulties. The physiological difficulties amount to this, that such a conception would be a most remarkable deviation from all natural laws. However obscure the physiology of the fact, it is proved by an exceptionless experience that only by the concurrence of the two sexes is a new human being generated on which account Plutarch's remark, Paideon udem ia pote guni legetai poisai dica quinen ias andros, and Serenthus's impossible, become applicable. It is only among the lowest species of the animal kingdom that generation takes place without the union of sexes, so that, regarding the matter purely physiologically, what origin says in the supernaturalistic sense would indeed be true of a man of the like origin namely that the words in psalm twenty two verse seven i am a worm and no man is a prophecy of jesus in the above respect but to the merely physical consideration a theological one is subjoined by the angel in luke chapter one verse thirty seven when he appeals to the divine omnipotence to which nothing is impossible. But since the divine omnipotence, 
by virtue of its unity with divine wisdom, is never exerted in the absence of an adequate motive, the existence of such, in the present instance, must be demonstrated. But nothing less than an object worthy of the deity, and at the same time necessarily unattainable except by a deviation from the ordinary course of nature, could constitute a sufficient cause for the suspension by God of a natural law which he had established. Only here, it is said, the end, the redemption of mankind, required impeccability on the part of Jesus, and in order to render him exempt from sin, a divinely wrought conception, which excluded the participation of a sinful father, and severed Jesus from all connection with original sin, was necessary. To which it has been answered by others, and Schleiermacher has recently most decisively argued this side of the question, that the exclusion of the paternal participation is insufficient, unless, indeed, the inheritance of original sin, on the maternal side, be obviated by the adoption of the Valentinian assertion, that Jesus only passed through the body of Mary. But that the gospel histories represent an actual maternal participation is undeniable. Consequently, a divine intervention which should sanctify the participation of the sinful human mother in the conception of Jesus must be supposed in order to maintain his assumed necessary impeccability. But if God determined on such a purification of the maternal participation, it had been easier to do the same with respect to that of the father than by his total exclusion to violate the natural law in so unprecedented a manner. And consequently, a fatherless conception cannot be insisted upon as the necessary means of compassing the impeccability of Jesus. Even he who thinks to escape the difficulties already specified by enveloping himself in a supernaturalism inaccessible to arguments based on reason or the laws of nature must nevertheless admit the force of the exegetical historical difficulties meeting him upon his own ground which likewise beset the view of the supernatural conception of jesus nowhere in the new testament is such an origin ascribed to jesus or even distinctly alluded to except in these two accounts of his infancy in matthew and in luke the history of the conception is omitted not only by mark but also by john the supposed author of the fourth gospel and an alleged inmate with the mother of jesus subsequent to his death who therefore would have been the most accurately informed concerning these occurrences it is said that john sought rather to record the heavenly than the earthly origin of Jesus. But the question arises whether the doctrine which he sets forth in his prologue, of a divine hypostasis actually becoming flesh and remaining imminent in Jesus, is reconcilable with the view given in the passages before us, of a simple divine operation determining the conception of Jesus. Whether, therefore, John could have presupposed the history of the conception contained in Matthew and Luke. This objection, however, loses its conclusive force if, in the progress of our investigation, the apostolic origin of the fourth gospel is not established. 
the most important consideration therefore is that no retrospective allusion to this mode of conception occurs throughout the four gospels not only neither in john nor in mark but also neither in matthew nor in luke not only does mary herself designate joseph simply as the father of jesus in luke chapter 2 verse 48 and the evangelist speak of both as his parents in luke chapter 2 verse 41 an appellation which could only have been used in an ulterior sense by one who had just related the miraculous conception but all his contemporaries in general according to our evangelists regarded him as a son of joseph a fact which was not unfrequently alluded to contemptuously and by way of reproach in his presence see matthew chapter thirteen verse fifty five luke chapter four verse twenty two and john chapter six verse forty two thus affording him an opportunity of making a decisive appeal to his miraculous conception of which however he says not a single word should it be answered that he did not desire to convince respecting the divinity of his person by this external evidence and that he could have no hope of making an impression by such means on those who were in heart his opponents it must also be remembered that according to the testimony of the fourth gospel his own disciples though they admitted him to be the son of god still regarded him as the actual son of joseph philip introduces jesus to nathanael as the son of joseph in john chapter one verse forty six manifestly in the same sense of real paternity which the jews attached to the designation and nowhere is this represented as an erroneous or imperfect notion which these apostles had subsequently to relinquish much rather does the whole sense of the narrative which is not to be mistaken exhibit the apostles as having a right belief on this point the enigmatical presupposition with which at the marriage in cana mary addressed herself to jesus is far too vague to prove a recollection of his miraculous conception on the part of the mother at all events this feature is counterbalanced by the opposing one that the family of jesus and as appears from matthew chapter twelve verse forty six and following compared with mark chapter three verse twenty one and following his mother also were at a later time in error respecting his aims which is scarcely explicable even of his brothers supposing them to have had such recollections just as little as in the gospels is anything in confirmation of the view of the supernatural conception of jesus to be found in the remaining new testament writings for when the apostle paul speaks of jesus as made of a woman in galatians chapter four verse four this expression is not to be understood as an exclusion of paternal participation since the addition made under the law clearly shows that he would here indicate in the form which is frequent in the old and new testament for example job chapter fourteen verse one matthew chapter eleven verse eleven human nature with all its conditions when paul in romans chapter one verses three and four compared with chapter nine verse five makes christ according to the flesh descend from david 
but declares him to be the son of god according to the spirit of holiness no one will here identify the antithesis flesh and spirit with the maternal human participation and the divine energy superseding the paternal participation in the conception of jesus finally when in the epistle to the hebrews chapter seven verse three melchizedek is compared with the son of god because without father the application of the literally interpreted apetur to jesus as he appeared upon earth is forbidden by the addition without mother which agrees as little with him as the immediately following without descent end of section twenty six